Thank you so much for being here at Alpine Church today. And hey, if you're in our online audience, we are just so delighted that you took the time to tune in and check out what we're going to share with you today. You know, we've been, um, by the way, my name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of our teaching pastors here at Alpine Church. It's always great to come and, and be with you guys at Layton Campus. We are so encouraged about the, the vitality and the energy you guys have and what God is doing here. It's so great to see whenever we're able to come and be with you guys. But we've been studying in this recent series, the, the Jesus Way. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. On one particular chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and in the whole uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is outlining how his followers will live. What does it look like to live as a follower of Jesus? And in chapter 5, Jesus sets up six contrasts. We call them the six antitheses. Where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He's establishing his authority. He's establishing his, that he has the, the final say about the intention and the direction of the law of God. And so uh, you can see on the screen, these are the six things that, that we've been looking at. I'm, I'm not going to go through them all in detail, but just to help you remember and recap if you missed a couple of those. Um, these are the things that Jesus is saying, this is what... The law says, or this is what really the common interpretations of the law might have said. And Jesus then says, well, let me tell you what the ultimate meaning and understanding and application of that aspect of the law really is. Now, there was no problem with the law, the law of Moses. It came from God. God is the one who gave Israel that law. But the problem was with how people interpreted the law because you know what? You know yourself. We know we're human beings. We hear what we want to hear, right? We um, twist and mold the Bible a lot of times to make it say what we would like it to say, to avoid some of the challenging implications of God's Word. And that's going to happen today because Jesus is going to challenge us with something that is really hard and something that we really don't want to hear or deal with. He's going to say, love your enemies, that's a tough one, man. Think about the people in your life who have not been good to you. Think about the people in your life who've been hard to get along with, who demean you or treat you like dirt or they don't like you or maybe they're even hostile toward you. And it might be personal for some reason. You know, you know something, somehow something happened and there's this personal issue between you and that, that other person, or, or maybe it's not personal, maybe it's just because they hate your values or your beliefs or what you stand for as a Christian. Those are the relationships that we're talking about today. And we're going to see how the Jesus way is so different from what comes naturally to our hearts, so radically different that there is going to be a temptation for us to say, whoa, whoa, wait, no, no. I can go this far, but I can't quite go that far with you, Pastor, with Jesus. And we're going to see how this is so different from what comes naturally. So I want to just read the whole passage with you together to kind of preview the, the idea. It's only a few verses long, and then we'll come back and look at each part of that. Um, so Matthew chapter 5, this is the very end of chapter 5. This is how Jesus concludes that chapter. He says, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. 
In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So you can see right there, Jesus puts the key idea on the table right at the beginning of that passage when he says, love your enemies. And that's going to be a challenge for us. A lot of times we don't even love very well the people who love us. They're enemies. Are you kidding? So let's explore what that means and how to do that in our lives. So the first thing that I want you to understand looking at that is that God never actually said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that's what Jesus quoted. You've heard that it was said. That's an example, just an example of how oftentimes we interpret the Bible in light of our own inclinations, how none of us is ever going to say, well, you know, I just don't want to follow the Bible at all. We're going to say probably, you know, we're going to spin that to justify our own behavior and our own attitudes. And that's what people had done with the law. So you can see what he said. I just read it a minute ago. I don't need to read it again. The Old Testament law said, love your neighbor. Jesus is quoting that here. We'll look at that verse in a second. But there's nothing in God's word ever that says, hate your enemy. That was, people came up with that. You can understand why. Because we all like a justification for hanging on to bitterness or or unforgiveness toward people who've hurt us. This is so, the implication was maybe, you know, if you're, if you're supposed to love your neighbor, then it's okay the people that you don't consider your neighbor to treat them differently. Here's what, here's what it actually says originally in Leviticus 19. The law of Moses says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbors as yourself. I am the Lord. And so I think people assume that Jesus said neighbor, or the law said neighbor, that it was someone that you like, or someone who likes you, or someone that you have some affinity with. But Jesus says, look, every person that you cross paths with is your neighbor, including people who oppose you, people to try, who try to harm you in some way. So think about it, in, in the most basic sense, your enemy is anyone who turns against you. Now that, that can be, Jesus says, in, in verse, we saw in verse 44, that could be somebody who actually persecutes you because of your faith or whatever. But it could be simply someone who does something to dishonor you, something who threatens you, someone, someone who hurts you in some way. It could be uh, emotionally, it could be physically or both. And sad to say, it could be someone from your own family. But you know what? Our natural response is we want to justify our animosity and our hatred toward that person because of all the things they've done for us. And you know what? Usually there's plenty of rationale to justify that response because people have done some pretty, pretty messy stuff in our lives. But Jesus says, look, love your enemies. Now, it doesn't mean you've got to like your enemies Because the biblical idea of love isn't just affection, it's not just good feelings, it's not just camaraderie, or there's different kinds of love, but ultimately the biblical definition of love is a decision of your will. You're going to decide to adopt a certain attitude and to act accordingly. A decision of your will to love your enemy means to choose their good. 
How am I going to choose the good, choose God's best for those people who have those responses toward me? In the most obvious way, if you look at verse 44, Jesus says to pray for them. Pray for those, he says, who persecute you. You're thinking, okay, I can do that. I can pray for them. I can pray for their downfall. I can pray for them to suffer. I can pray for God, for God to deal with them. You know, but, but you know what? The person who, think about the person who said this. As Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. He's the same one who when he was hanging on the cross and brutally beaten and abused, how did he pray for his enemies? In that moment, he said, Father, forgive them. Can you think of anybody who needs prayer more than your enemies? It might sound something like this. Lord, I hate this person, but you already know that. And so, I'm, God, I'm going to ask you for a love that I don't have toward them, that I can't begin to produce toward them. And, and Father, I'm going to ask you to bless them and to fulfill your plans for them. Now, somebody once said that prayer doesn't just change things around us. It, pr- it primarily changes us. And so I want to explore in our next point how loving your neighbor actually changes you. And so what we're going to see is that um, the world's way imprisons us, but the Jesus way sets us free. Now this whole thing about love your enemy, it's easy to write this off. It's tempting to just reject this as idealism. Or to say, you know what, this is totally unworkable in the real world. It's a great ideal, it's a great for a poster, whatever, but in the real world that I live in, there's no way that this could possibly work. And it's true. This does set Christians apart as unique. It is unrealistic apart from Jesus Christ and his work in our lives. So the next thing that Jesus says in verse 46 and 47, he says, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends... How are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. He said, look, the, the worst criminals, the most corrupt people in the world, love the people who love them. You know, even, even Stalin loved his daughter. And, and he says, you know, if you look at the, the world, the pagan world, so to speak, he's talking about the people who don't know the living God. He says, they, they love people who love them. And so that's not a very big ask. To love the people who love you, that, that's really not, that's small potatoes. But Jesus makes his followers different from most people as he works in our lives. And how that difference plays out, it, it actually plays out in your own soul. Let me explain some ways that that happens. So I want to talk about when you hate your enemy compared to when you love your enemy. And just touch briefly on a couple of things that give you a picture of this. When you hate your enemy, you camouflage your own sin. See, you've put so much emotional energy into what others have done to you that you stop looking at your own heart. You stop looking at your own behavior. And it's easy to justify our own sinful response to the way people have sinned against us. When you hate your enemy, you get stuck in bitterness. You've experienced that, haven't you? When you you fall into this trap that you can't get out of where animosity and hatefulness and revenge begin to dominate your soul. Somebody once said, this has really stuck with me because I think this this is so true, that when you refuse to forgive somebody else, that's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. 
Right? Somehow we think that all of that negative emotional energy we put into bitterness and unforgiveness, that somehow that's going to change anything in their life. They don't, they're, they're, they don't have any, they're not affected by that. But you know what? Your unforgiveness and your bitterness definitely will hurt and poison you. And then related to that, when you hate your enemy, you chain yourself to that person. Because they start to, they've got control of your heart, of your life, because you, you just can't stop thinking about them and what they've done. You start obsessing about that person. They're, they're in your head all the time. So they gain this, this control, and it creates an emotional bond to that person until you can let it go. But when you love your enemy, on the other hand, then it's easy to admit that, that I'm also a sinner, right? That I, I can see my own flaws, and what happens is that I view that other person through the lens of grace and mercy. In other words, just the same way that Jesus views me. When you love that other person, you free yourself to forgive them. We'll talk about that in a moment. And finally, you, you connect yourself to the yoke of Jesus. Now, this is an agricultural metaphor that the Bible uses back in the day when you had two two oxen yoked together to do work, to pull a plow or to pull a cart. This team of oxen, that, that uh, there'd be typically one that was stronger and one that was weaker. And that yoke that went across their necks, across their shoulders, had them both pulling together in the same direction and not pulling against each other. And in that yoke, really the stronger ox does the greater work. Well, here's how Jesus used that analogy in Matthew 11. He says, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. And see, when we love our enemies, we're doing that. That's what his heart is. We're going to see more. That's what, how he treated us. And so when we love our enemies, we're pulling in the same direction as Jesus. You know what? Uh, he's the strong one. We're the weak one. We desperately need him to do the work in us. And, and when we take his yoke and pull together with him in the things that he values and prioritizes, then we experience that strength. So think about some applications, like, like when you feel like you're getting angry at political leaders of the other side, right? Don't, don't, don't tell me that hadn't happened, right? When you get angry at, at inflammatory stuff that people post on social media, you know, you don't have to agree with what other people are saying, but my question is, what's in your heart toward that person? What's in your heart toward that person and their voice? Even tougher than that is when it gets personal, the person who has wronged you individually in some way. You know, when you're yoked with Jesus, you become free then, free from the ugliness of the sin that stains and infects that relationship and free to seek God's best for that person. Now by now, in my mind, I, and probably in your mind too, you're going like, well, there's two questions at least that come to mind. The first question is, Why? Well, Jesus said it, but why did he say it? Why are we to love our enemies? Why does that matter? And then the second question is how? How does that even happen? What does it even look like? How can I get there? 
So I want to answer that with our third point, that blessing our enemies is the ultimate expression of the Jesus way. We talked about praying for our enemies. That's one way to bless them. But there's some other ways to bless them too that come out in this passage. And we'll discover them as we look at two fundamental reasons why. Why we should love, why we should bless our enemies. Number one is that when you bless your enemies, it actually reflects the heart of God himself. This is what God is like. Look at Matthew 5, verse 45. Jesus says, in that way, when you love your enemies, in that way you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends his rain to the just and the unjust alike. You see what that's saying there? That's saying God is good even to people who don't like him. God is good even to people who want nothing to do with him, who oppose him, who defy him, who curse him, who shake their fist in his face. God still blesses them with provision, with sustenance in life, with sunshine, with rain, and other good gifts. Now ultimately in the end, those people are going to answer to God and face his judgment for their rebellion against him. But here in this life, God still pours out blessing after blessing after blessing to people who don't love him, to people who oppose and reject him. And Jesus says, look, when we act the same way, we prove that we are true children of our Father in heaven. Now, anybody can say they're a Christian. Anybody can say they love God or have a relationship with God. What's the proof of that? Here's the proof that you have the same heart that God has. You have the same heart your father has. How do you know you have the same heart that he has? It's when you treat people like he treats people. When you're good to people like he's good to people. And so what might it look like to bless people who are against us? Well, Romans 12, verse 20 says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. Blessing that person. I saw an example of this. I don't know if you, some of you remember when the, when the Berlin Wall came down. It's 1989. That's a long time ago now, right? But with it came, fell communism in East Germany. And when that happened... There was nobody in East Germany who was more hated than the communist dictator, Eric Honecker. In fact, even his own party abandoned him. He was kicked out of the villa, the luxurious villa he had built for himself. The new government refused to provide housing for him and his wife, and so they became instantly homeless and destitute. Well, maybe they had it coming to them. Maybe they didn't. But, but this is where a pastor comes into the play, a guy, Pastor Uwe Holmer. He was the direction, director of a Christian help center north of Berlin, and he became aware of their situation. Now, he had housing that he was using as part of his help center, and he felt like it would be wrong for him to give a room to them that was meant for people who were needier than they were. And so the pastor and his family took the former dictator into their own home. Now, Honecker's wife, Margot, had ruled the East German educational system for 26 years. Eight 
of Pastor Homer's 10 children were denied access to higher education, refused entry into the higher education system because her policies discriminated against Christians. So they had been the recipients of, of, of that attitude and that heart. And now, here they are, they're caring for their personal enemy. They're caring for the most hated man in Germany right there in their own home. It's so unnatural, so unconventional, so much like the heart of God. Here's another reason why we hate, we hate, we, we're called to love those who, who hate us, who are enemies. And it's related to this, but, but the idea is that when we bless our enemies, we're reflecting exactly how Jesus treated us. This is the heart of the gospel. So look with me at Romans chapter 5 in verses 10 and 11. He says, For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. This is a central theme of the whole Bible, how Jesus died for us. But I want you to notice it says that he did that while we were still his enemies. Doesn't matter how religious you, you were or you are. Doesn't matter how, what a good moral person you were or you are. He says, you know, in our natural condition, apart from Christ, we're enemies of God. In other words, Jesus sacrificed himself for people who really wanted nothing to do with him on his own terms. He gave his life for them, not just for good people, not just for people who already loved him, but he gave his life for people like you and me. I hope you've received that love. I hope you have entrusted your life and your eternity into Jesus' hands and crossed that line of faith. And I encourage you to consider that today. But here's my point. We know what love for our enemies looks like because it looks just like how Jesus loves us. When he paid for our sins on the cross, even though we deserved only God's judgment and condemnation. That's the essence of the Christian faith, the essence of the Christian life. That's why we love our enemies. That's the gospel. That made me think of Nadine Collier. Her mother, Ethel, was one of nine victims killed back in 2015. You remember when there was a shooting massacre at Mother Emanuel AME Church in, in Charleston, South Carolina? The, the church was gathered in a prayer meeting and an, and a, and an assassin walked in with a gun and as, in a racially motivated shooting. He just started knocking people out. Nine people were killed, including Nadine Collier's mother. And when she was given a chance to address the killer, in open court, Collier choked back her tears as she said, you took something very precious from me. I will never get to talk to her again, but I forgive you. I have mercy on your soul. If God forgives you, she says, I forgive you. If we keep hating, resenting, holding grudges, against others, we deny the cross. And we forget how Jesus has treated us. Now one last verse. Jesus sums up this whole thing at the very end of Matthew chapter 25, the final verse of the chapter. 
verse 48, he says, but you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Remember the context, he says, you know, hey, even, even pagans and, and criminals love the people who love them. He says, but you, but you, there's something else he calls us to. Now, is this saying that humans can become divine, like perfect the way God is perfect in all of his, his being and everything? No. God, God is a completely different kind of being than us. And so we have to read this in the light of verse 45. In the, in the context, verse 45 says that when we bless our enemy, we do reflect God's heart. We do mirror that heart of God. We do reflect a likeness to him not in the, the level of our being, but in, in this aspect of our character. It becomes more and more like Christ. That word perfect in Greek doesn't mean flawless in every way, but it means complete. It's becoming complete. It's, it's reaching a goal. And so Jesus is saying that our goal as Christ followers should be to love as our Father in heaven loves. Now you know as well as I do, we can't do that on our own ability. We can't do any of this in our own resources. Maybe you've tried and you failed. Because here's what you need to understand. Whenever we talk about improving, whenever we talk about following Jesus, you have to remember the Christian life is not a moral improvement project. The Christian life is not about gritting your teeth and just trying harder to be better. The Christian life is a supernatural life. It can only be lived by divine resources, by the Holy Spirit who lives in you as a Christ follower. It doesn't happen. Loving your enemy doesn't happen by trying harder to love. It happens as we surrender to God our broken attitude. We surrender to God our hateful spirit. We own up to that and own up to all the ways that we haven't loved other people. And stop making excuses for how, because they're so evil and so bad and what they've done to me. But instead calling out, just crying out for the transformative work of Jesus. And then cultivating a relationship with him, a life-giving relationship with him every single day, day in, day out. Drawing on him. And then as we're doing that, then we choose in specific moments to love specific people by his power in us. Let me, let me tell you a story that explains what I'm talking about. I recently read this about a missionary who was on a break with her family. That, that's what missionaries, uh, Christian missionaries often get. Uh, uh, every three or four years, they'll come home for a while, six months or whatever. Sometimes it's called furlough. So this missionary is on furlough with her family. They just completed an unusually tiring and stressful assignment. The last few years had been tough. And so she was really looking forward to this time of recharging their batteries and renewing their family time and all the rest, looking forward to it with great anticipation. And for the very first time, she was going to have a place of her own. It was a new townhome-type apartment with a, with a patio, and, and she made that patio the focus of all her creativity, her decorating, just kind of made that an, her nest and made it her home. A beautiful patio. Well, it wasn't long before some new neighbors moved in next door, and they were difficult people. Played loud music all the time, every, all the time, night and day, any time of day. You could hear coming over the fence from their yard a constant flow of obscenities. 
they engaged in many different kinds of rude and disruptive behavior. And she, she could see zero good in them whatsoever. And it just, you know how that, how that is, it kind of then rankles you and it builds up and you get, uh, you start to get an attitude. And, and the breaking point for her was one day when she came home to discover that the neighbor's kids had spray painted in orange all over her beautiful patio, including the ground, including the furniture, the fence, the plants, everything covered with orange spray paint. How would you respond to that? Oh my gosh. She was so distraught, so furious with them. She tried to pray, but she couldn't. All she could do was cry out, I can't love them, I hate them. You see, she reached at that moment the end of her own strength and her own patience. And in that crisis moment, she tried to pray but couldn't. She realized how desperately she needed what only Christ could do in her. The situation drove her to seek Jesus more deeply than ever, and she began to experience a deeper life of Christ within that's what happens, right, when we go in crisis. Sometimes it drives us to our knees, drives us to go deep. And that's what happened with her. And so one day, one day she's processing all of this. The Holy Spirit led her to make a list of what she would do if she really chose the good of her exasperating neighbors. Praying that through, she started to bake them cookies she started to offer to babysit for free. She started to invite the mother over for coffee. And a beautiful thing happened over time. She began to really know and understand them and, and see the tremendous pressure. She could begin to empathize with the, the crazy pressures that this family was under. They didn't know how to deal with. Now eventually this, these neighbors moved away. And there was a time in her life when she would have jumped for joy. Yeah, I'm free. Instead, when that happened, she wept. She wept because an unnatural, unconventional, a supernatural love had captured her heart. A love like God shows to us. So can you think of one relationship today in your life that needs a new approach? You think of one person who's against you, who treats you wrong, one situation where you need to rely on the divine power of the Holy Spirit to respond to that person in a different way than you have in the past, or in a way that doesn't come naturally to you. Think about that person. How will you pray for them this week? How will you choose to bless them when God gives you an opportunity to do that? And what will you forgive? Now in a few minutes, uh, in moments, Pastor John's going to come up and he's going to lead us in communion. It's a reminder of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood for us on the cross. It's a celebration of Jesus' grace and love for us while we were still enemies of God. And so I want to encourage you to use this holy moment as we come to those elements, as we worship and sing in song and in prayer, to use this holy moment to connect with the heart of God. To let God talk to you about 
your attitude towards certain people. To take the yoke of Jesus upon yourself in the toughest relationships in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us, your incredible, unbelievable love for us. Gosh, Father, that when we were still your enemies, you didn't wait for us to love you first. You didn't wait till we were pursuing you. You pursued us first. Thank you, God, that you pour out love in, in people who don't deserve it. That, Jesus, you died for people who don't deserve it. And so we pray, Father, that that love would be birthed in us as your people, your followers. That you do that in us. That our lives and the way we treat the people around us, the impossibility of what you're asking us to do would bear witness to your power. Your goodness. Nobody would say, oh, you're such a good person. They'd say, oh, man, God is so great in you. So help us, God. Help us get there. As you speak, these are, there's some tough things that have happened to us that other people have done. There's some di- difficult, difficult things that people have done to us or are doing to us right now. God, we need you to get us there. We need, we need you to break through, for your love to break through. We pray that as we remember you, Jesus, in the cup and in the bread, that you would do just that. We pray it in your most holy name. Amen. Amen.